Well, good morning, Greenwich. It's Saturday. It's September 19th uh, at the end of another week uh, already. Uh, these days seem to move so quickly. Uh, and we're at the end of summer, right? And so the next couple days, we'll see us shift over, at least on the calendar, uh, from summer to fall. And uh, the changed weather uh, seems to, to, to feel that way for us. I want to read uh, a psalm that truly, truly, truly is one of my favorites, okay? Uh, they're all my favorites, but this is really a favorite. <clears throat> uh, this will be a little familiar. I think we hear this or parts of this um, uh, pretty frequently. This is Psalm 139 for the director of music, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. Mm. So much goodness in this psalm. The omniscience, omnipresence uh, of God, wherever we go, up to the heavens, down to the depths, the far side of the sea, we, we could not escape <laughs> from God. <clears throat> 
And God knows us completely before a word is on our tongue. He knows it. He's hemmed us in. He's kept us. Uh, We, his people, are secure. Even if we would want to just clothe ourselves in darkness, the darkness is a light. And so it's this, this sense of God knowing us thoroughly, completely, even as we are being knit together in our mother's womb, unto the end of our days, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came to be. And then there's this interesting couple verses that seem like um, kind of nails on the chalkboard or somebody who's come and defaced a a beautiful artwork, right? If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And then almost as if he catches himself, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need the whole psalm, right? (laughs) Even that, that portion of the psalm that seems so out of place. Um, But this psalm is so important. Again, the daily reading and praying of the psalms gives us the opportunity 12 times a year on the 19th of every month to engage this psalm and to be reminded, maybe as we're kind of two-thirds of the way through another month, God is keeping us, God is watching us, all the words, all the ways, all that we're about, God knows. And when you know each month maybe starts with a little hope and promise and the calendar is as it is, and by about now we're starting to look into the next month, right? We're, we're planning by the 19th of a month, you know, you get, and there's something about this that kind of recalibrates and grounds me, certainly. I, I love praying this psalm. It's comforting to me. Uh, and then I love, again, those last last few verses. Search me, God, just know my heart. This, um, as we kind of come to the conclusion of our Theology 403, the church uh, at the end or and the end, kind of playing double duty. And I think this is going to conclude, today's going to conclude this initial set of theological reflections, the 100, 200, 300, now 400 series, each with three sets of lessons, so 12 sets of lessons, and this kind of intended to to button up a little bit. And and so it's this seems appropriate, all the days ordained for me as we've been contemplating our end, both our chief end, what we're to be about, and then the end of our life, our termination, our death. And, and contemplating that as well. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We can live with a security that our days are known. Yes, they're numbered. Talked about that yesterday. Psalm 90 teaches us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When we live with this sense that, that we are going to die. Let, let's just all get clear on that. Unless the Lord returns and takes us home first... <laughs> we're going to die. And so all the things that we're anxious about, all the things we're worried about, all the things we obsess about, all the things we're regretful over, all that is going to go away. 
So how can we begin to live in light of that day? That's the question. And so this, this knowledge that when the number of our days that God has appointed are up, he will call us home. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows our beginning and our end. We don't, but he is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so we live inside the, the parenthesis or the brackets that, that, that are God. And so let, let's reflect for a little bit. <clears throat> so the church at the end, um, in the book of Revelation, which does occupy the attention of many people who are concerned about eschatology, the last things. As I said, some look to um, the book of Revelation as somewhat of a Rosetta Stone, kind of it's the decoder ring that's going to help to crack the code on when and how all these things are going to happen. I do not read the book of Revelation that way. I read it as a pastoral letter. John and pastoral relationship to the church who's being persecuted during the time of the Roman Empire, speaking about the empire through the image of Babylon, okay, the state is the beast is the Babylon, okay, and then you've got the church, the faithful, and so you've got the way of the beast, the way of the lamb, the way of the dragon, uh, the, the, the people of God, both sets of people are sealed, a 666 sealing uh, for the wicked, uh, those who, who belong to the beast, to the earth, to the world, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. We talked about that last week. And so then you have the sealed saints of God, okay, who bear the, the, the name of the lamb uh, on, their, on their forehead or the blood of the lamb. We've been sprinkled with the blood of the lamb, okay? So there's this contrast, and it's true in every age. I believe it's a pastoral letter that speaks to God's people, to the church in every generation. Just at a very high-level summary, John is, is presenting a pastoral letter to encourage the saints in the midst of the crisis. Okay, so that's what's going on. They're in crisis. They're in pressure. Uh, the world, the empire, the beast is coming against them for their faith. Some have lost their lives. John is imprisoned. And so he's writing a, a, a letter to encourage them, to strengthen their endurance and their perseverance. Don't give up. Don't, don't back down. Okay, And so he presents a heavenly vision that God gives him a, a good ending to the story. Okay, And so we have in chapters 4 and 5, there's a lot of good stuff in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but chapters 4 and 5, we have the throne room. There is one seated. And then there is the lion uh, of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who looks like he was slain, that is there in the center. But then there's four living creatures. And then there are 24 other thrones. And on them are seated 24 elders. It's commonly believed or understood, kind of there's a symbolic thing going on here. You have the fullness of the covenant family. The old covenant family that is faithful, Moses and Abraham and the like, okay? So, the, so that's re represented in the 12 of the thrones. And then the other 12 thrones are the 12 um, apostles. And so you've got the new covenant community. So Jesus chose 12 apostles in parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel, reconstituting Israel, now not by ethnicity and birth and bloodline through Abraham, but by connection and, and faith in Jesus. And so the 24 elders are the 12 old and the 12 new, representing the salvation of the fullness of the wholeness of the covenant community. And so those who came before Christ 
who are part of that old covenant community, uh, the faithful are, are, are going to be there, gathered around that throne. And so the throne room is presenting a picture of uh, a redeemed community, a multitude that no one can count. And then we have that multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation purchased with the blood of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb because with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This diverse community that God intends. So he starts with Adam and Eve, one family, and then he takes um, uh, and he takes the Abrahamic family, okay? And then the others are the Gentiles, but God's plan all along is to have people from every language and tribe and race in one. So the church is God's answer to the problem of racism. The church is God's answer to the problem of tribalism, Okay. Um, the church is the answer to the, to the confusion of the languages uh, at Babel as a sign of judgment. And at Pentecost, as the church is being formed, we have a reversal of that. And so we have this beautiful picture of a community from all over the globe. Okay, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you I will bless all the peoples on the earth. Okay, And so we have a picture of that Abrahamic promise having come true. Towards the end of the book of Revelation, you have a wedding supper of the Lamb. So you have a marriage, okay? Jesus, the great bridegroom of the church as the bride, okay? He hints at that in some of his parables that we read in the Gospels, okay? Paul writes of this mystery of the church, which is the bride of Christ, okay? And so you got a wedding supper of the Lamb. And then in chapter 21, you have... Uh, John has a vision of a new heaven and a new earth, fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 65. Uh, the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And he will wipe every tear away and there will be no more death or sorrow or pain. And so we have here the beginning of this reversing of the curse, okay, that then gets picked up in chapter 22. And so I want to read chapter 22. This is the last book, okay? So, I mean, sorry, this is the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. So that which began in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with the creation story now concludes here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. So this throne room where so much of this action, now there's this stream, this river that flows out. And it's an echo of uh, Ezekiel chapter 48, where he pictures there the rebuilt temple. Well, the temple itself, physical temple, isn't going to be rebuilt. It's this spiritual temple, okay? So on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Well, that's from the Garden of Eden. That's, there, there was a tree of life and then there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God had to guard the way to the tree of life lest Adam and Eve take hold of that tree of life and live in this corrupted state of, of rebellion and defiance. And so God said, we must guard them, keep them out, okay? So on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit 
yielding its fruit every month. And so this continual fruitfulness, this life that is every season, every month, there is going to be life and, and fruitfulness. There won't be a, a winter, a spring, summer, fall. And so it is going to be fruitful all year round. There won't be a winter, okay, as we conceive it. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Salvation, healing, that we talked about that. The, one of the root meanings of salvation is healing, restoring, okay, bringing back into fullness, wholeness, uh, integrity of life, uh, both body, mind, spirit, relationship. So for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be any curse. You don't read about the curse much. In fact, you go back to Genesis 3, the curse pronounced after the fall. So the serpent will uh, scurry along on his belly. There will be enmity between or hostility between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Okay, so that's part of the curse. The curse for the woman is the pain and childbearing. The curse for the man is sweat of the brow. He labors against futilely, futilely against uh, the, the, the earth. And so instead of the garden being fruitful, there's going to be thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow. It will, it will bear fruit but it ain't going to be easy, okay? And so no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And so Revelation chapter 22 pictures the Garden of Eden. It's clearly that's what's going on, okay? It's not like, well, maybe. So you've got the reference to the tree of life, you've got to the, 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 the reference to the fruitfulness, you've got to this, the, the, the restoration, uh, no longer will it be a curse, the curse was spoken in the garden. And then I would argue to you, you've got this, this, this wedding supper that is being prepared, okay? And so in the beginning, God places the man and woman in the garden, it's fruitful, the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and the man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two shall be one. Not that Adam and Eve had the mother and father, but it is the speaking of this. So Adam and Eve, there's a garden wedding in the beginning, okay? They become husband and wife. They're naked without shame. There's a joining, an intimacy, a union. And so heaven is pictured as a union, as a wedding between bride, the church, and Jesus Christ. And there's an intimacy and a joy uh, and, a, and a connection, uh, this union. And so it's all pictured. Heaven brings this, this final vision, brings this all together. And so the garden is restored. And then that verse, they will see his face. See, right now we cannot see the face of God. Uh, uh, blinded by sin, our sins have, have made a separation. And Paul says, uh, here we see through a glass darkly, then we shall see face to face. And so the, our Catholic friends uh, have written of the beatific vision, the blessed vision, to be able to behold God face to face. 
we will be healed, we will be restored, we will be set right, and so we will be able to come into his presence as Adam and Eve were. And so there is this, this completion of, of the story. And so the story comes full circle. We start in the garden, we end in the garden. We start with fruitfulness, we end with fruitfulness. We start without a curse, we end without a curse. <laughs> We start in the presence of God. We end in the presence of God. There is this beautiful picture, this symmetry, that the whole story of the scripture comes back together from a garden, out into the wilderness, out into the wild, and then back into the garden. Okay, And so God's purposes and promises completely fulfilled. That promise to Abraham to bless all nations it is in the process of being fulfilled now through Jesus Christ and then Christ's proclamation and now a church that gathers people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. But see, not every tribe, language, people, and nation has been reached. There are unreached peoples. And so the missionary endeavor con continues. And so we send folks out and folks are sent from all nations to all kinds. It's not only American church, that the American church that sends out missionaries. But we labor to translate the scriptures from Greek and Hebrew, not only into English as we have, but into these other languages that have never, there are people who've never heard of Jesus. There are people who do not have an opportunity to read the Bible. And so the, the work is going on. So John has a vision of the fullness and the completion of that. So that's the end of the story. This termination is a good end. So I think I mentioned this a couple days ago. I hope I did. I'm saying it now. That when I conduct a funeral service, and I've had several this summer, it's been a difficult time in the church family. Uh, we've lost dear loved ones. And I always say some version of this, death is not the end of the story for our loved one. This is not where the story ends. <laughs> because of Jesus Christ, because of his resurrection, he tramples down death by death. He rises again. He opens the way to eternal life. We will rise because Christ lives. We too shall live. And so death does not have the final word in the story. And we have to remember that because we get fooled into thinking death is the end of the story. It's not, okay? And so the promises of God fulfilled, we have this picture. How can we learn to live this day, today, September 19th, in light of that day that we're reading about here? Where there is no more night, there's no need for the sun because the Lord is their light. And, and, and so the fruitfulness and the healing and the restoration and the goodness and the seeing God face to face, no more curse, no more struggling against whatever besetting sin, whatever besetting anxiety and struggle you deal with. I know what I deal with. You've got something you're constantly wrestling against. That goes away. And the, the wince and the pain in our heart over grief, over loss, over sorrow, that goes away. There is no more death. He wipes every tear from our eyes. There is no more death. Death is swallowed up in victory. So how can we live this day, September 19th, 2020, in the knowledge of that day? This is what it means to live eschatologically. 
So I said at the beginning, how can we live this day in light of that day? That is, knowing our days are numbered, knowing that all the things I'm worried about uh, are one day just going to be not on my mind anymore, okay? How can I live today in light of that day? Knowing my days are numbered, how can that lead me to a place of wisdom? Hmm. And this knowledge that God keeps us and knows us and, and protects us and, and shepherds us and, and has our days appointed. How can we let that liberate us to live more faithfully, more fully, more presently to neighbors, to God? How can we love and serve and, and play, okay? And eat and enjoy just the goodness and gifts of this life. And so how can we live this day in light of that day? How can we live in light of our own appointed days? But then how can we live these days in light of this good day that is coming? And this is the eschatological hope. This is what gives us hope and confidence. There is a day coming, a cloudless day, an unclouded day as we sing. I want to close with a, a reading, just the very end, like the last few paragraphs of uh, a book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Last Battle. It's the last of the seven chronicles of Narnia. Um, I read the first of the books for the children back at the begin, beginning of the pandemic. Had intended to read them all, and it took a little longer than I thought. Maybe I'll get back to that, uh, to read that for the children. But The Last Battle is kind of Lewis's summing up book. Narnia, this land where Aslan, the Christ figure, um, this great lion Aslan who rules over uh, Narnia, the children from England find their way into Narnia, uh, in and out of Narnia in kind of magical, wonderful ways, okay? And so um, the, here's how the story ends. And so Aslan looking at uh, the children. Then Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy, the youngest, said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often because they would come to Narnia and then be sent back. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And that's how Lewis wraps up 
the Narnia series. Now, I recall reading these books for the very first time. I, I read them as a Christian, and I didn't read them until I had children. And I remember reading, and I just, it was that. I, one, I don't want this book, I don't want this series to end. You know how when you fall in love with a set of characters in a, in a, 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 a series, a Netflix series or something, or a book series, you just don't want it to end. And this is what Lewis is writing about, that not wanting it to end, that ache. There is a story that doesn't end. <laughs> and so what we're living, this is the Shadowlands. That's the real end. So C.S. Lewis, I referred to the great divorce between heaven and hell, that, that, that imaginary story. That's another one of his stories. And so Lewis is meditating on all of this, heaven and hell and death and eternity in these writings. And he's capturing in, in, in imaginative, creative ways so that we can understand. So we don't just dump it down into just a religious kind of thing, but that we go, oh, this world that we are now living is but the cover and title page for the real story that is ahead. So all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, and this is just the prelude to the real story. But we look at our lives, and I'm 60 now, and I think, oh my goodness, I'm so old. I'm getting closer to the end of my life. No, I'm getting closer to the beginning <laughs> of the real story. And this is what Scripture has for us. <laughs> so, so looping back to the Theology 101, the forest from the trees, I hope in some way these 12 weeks of theological reflection, just trying to patiently peel back some, some, some ideas. We haven't covered everything that is to be covered, of course not, but have tried to capture some highlights to give a framework, to give some understanding, to give some language, to give some, some handles so that we may understand what these scriptures are all about. And I love the way Lewis ends it. I love the way John ends it. The story beautifully comes back to the beginning in the garden. And that's what awaits us. And that's when life really begins. Okay? So I'm going to close now. And um, not sure what we're going to do next week. Uh, going to kind of pause the theology reflections. May loop back. Probably we'll do a summary at some point. Um, and, and, and go back over them at a high level. But um, they're recorded, and I hope, if you haven't watched each of the lessons, I hope you will, and I need to go back and watch them, and there may be some places I need to amend or correct or adjust or clarify. But this has been a wonderful exercise, and thank you for watching. It, um, it encourages me, inspires me to keep doing this work. Um, as a teacher of the faith, it is incumbent upon me to teach the faith. And uh, the number of folks who are watching and giving me feedback encourages me to keep uh, doing this. And so let's close for now with deep gratitude uh, for God and these truths and these scriptures and this uh, fellowship that we're sharing together in this way. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Oh, how we thank you for this story, the, the wonderful words of life, this old, old story, <laughs> when we get to the end of the story, we will find that it's the new, new story, and it's the one that we've loved for so long. 
and thank you for the way you inspired John and revealed to John this beautiful picture of the garden restored and how we yearn for that, how we ache for that in our own lives, for the healing of the nations and the healing of our lives. We know, Lord, we still labor in the wilderness. We labor east of Eden, but we know that there is a garden awaiting, a restoration awaiting, a wedding supper and a wedding celebration awaiting us and a time when every tear is wiped from our eyes and there is no more pain or sorrow or sighing and death is no more for it is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us to live this day in light of that day as best we can, trusting in your gracious Holy Spirit and trusting that Jesus Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so, Father, we pray your healing prayers and strength and courage and hope upon us all as we offer our prayers in the loving name of Jesus, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the God of the great story (laughs) who created us and placed us in the garden and who is remaking us and recreating us in Christ and is building that garden for us again, Lord. May May that God bless you and keep you this day and forevermore. Amen.